That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of the Lord. A few minutes ago, we sang, Bringing in the Sheaves. And we sang these very positive and powerful words, sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. But you also sang, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master, though the loss sustained our spirit often grieves. I believe this hymn writer had read the whole story, understood that sometimes sowing goes really well and other times it doesn't go well at all, that even in the story Jesus told, three out of four seeds ended up very badly. Let's take a look. Number one, Matthew begins by saying, There were such large crowds who came to hear Jesus that he got into a boat and was rowed a little way from the land so that the people might stand to hear him. His voice would carry and project better. They could see and hear him. He could speak to them. Number one, these were big, big crowds. Dr. Edward Schweitzer says in his commentary, Matthew needed to tell this story because by the time he wrote things were not going nearly so well. Matthew, his faith community, were not drawing those huge crowds that Jesus had drawn in the most popular times in his ministry. I can tell you that as a minister, sometimes things go easily, and sometimes they don't go nearly so easily. When I was finally finishing my last year of graduate school, we were about to be appointed to a church in Houston. My district superintendent had called and said, We want the pastor of the Memorial Drive United Methodist Church to fly up to Dallas, take you and Gail out to dinner, and tell you what he needs in an associate minister. So he flew up, took Gail and me to Cattleman's Steakhouse. We had never been, I can assure you. It was a wonderful meal, and then he said, We're a fast-growing young church. We're only seven years old. We have over 1,400 members. We believe that a person like you could take in 400 members next year. 400. I grew up in a little Methodist church three miles outside of Carthage, Texas. All those growing up years, we had about 75 in Sunday school, about 100 in worship. My brother and his wife still belong there. My sister and her husband belong there. And from time to time I ask, How's the church doing? Oh, fine. We have about 75 in Sunday school and about 100 in worship. 
Then I was appointed as a student, 18 years old, right out of high school, to two little churches. When I arrived there and started looking at their records of the last few years, neither had taken in a single member. And so I said to the smaller one, do you think we could find one new person every three months? said, what? And I said, could we find one new one every three months? And to the bigger one, I said, you think we could find one new person to join us every month? Just one a month? That's where I'd been for six years. And suddenly this man was saying, you could take in 400. Well, we moved to Houston. And we discovered we were now in a neighborhood where there were more houses being built and sold and moved into than Gail and I had ever seen in our lives. Late in the afternoons, we would ride our bicycles through these new subdivisions and I would look for moving vans. And the next morning, I would be there ringing a doorbell. (laughs) Now, this was a time when you could walk up at 10 o'clock in the morning, ring a doorbell, a woman would open the door. And I would say, I'm Muzan Biggs, the new minister on staff at Memorial Drive United Methodist Church. Oh, please, come in. And we would talk about where they are members now or not members. Any chance you could be a United Methodist? We would love to have you in our church. In two years, we took in 1,324 members. More than 13 a week. 13 people a week. Sometimes things go wonderfully well. Other times things don't go so well. Sometimes it's much more difficult. When I first moved to Houston, the senior minister at this church, Lawrence Landrum, said, I want to fly you out to California. I want you to spend some time with Dr. Eugene Golay. He's the one that wrote a book about building fishermen's clubs. I read Eugene Golay's book. He talked about having men's fishermen teams, women's fishermen teams. He talked about older adults and middle-aged adults and younger adults and even teenagers going out and calling on people, inviting them to church. While he was minister of evangelism at the First United Methodist Church in Phoenix, they were taking in more members than any other Methodist church in the country. But when I flew out to see him in Glendale, California, walked into his office, he was sitting there with his head in his hands. He said, you should have come to see me ten years ago. Ten years ago, I was in Phoenix. Ten years ago, Phoenix was booming. All we had to do was drive up and ring a doorbell. People came and joined our church. He said, I organized just as many teams here in Glendale. We called on 386 apartments one Saturday afternoon and the next day, Sunday afternoon. And in the last six months, one person we called on has dared even show up for church. It doesn't always work, he said. It doesn't always work. Sometimes things go really well, easily almost, and other times it's hard, hard work, and three out of four seeds end up badly. Number two, this is still about teaching and preaching, being faithful in teaching and preaching. Jesus is the teacher here. He's the teacher. They are students of his But there are others of us who have this role of teaching and preaching. The Wall Street Journal recently carried a book review of a professor's criticizing Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, saying that Mr. Rogers has contaminated a whole generation of American kids. That he talked to all these preschoolers about how special they were, and now they all feel entitled. What was even more interesting, though, were the letters to the editor that came in to the Wall Street Journal. 
people defending Mr. Rogers, including his writers, including his producers. They devoted two-thirds of a page in the Wall Street Journal to these answers to this fellow's book. And what they said was, you didn't hear Mr. Rogers. This fellow was an ordained Presbyterian minister. He took responsibility very seriously. From the moment he walked in the door, he always hung up his coat. He always put his sweater back. He always saw to it that all toys were picked up and put in their proper place. He always saw to it with these preschoolers that everything they had used in crafts that day were carefully cleaned up and put where they should have been. Mr. Rogers acknowledged that little children can feel anger, and he asked, but what do we do with our mad? He understood that little children can have hurt feelings, and he'd say, but what do we do with our sad these writers said, you didn't hear Mr. Rogers. He was calling little children to be responsible. Underneath all of this was, in fact, the message, you are a special child of God. So is everyone else you meet, so you should treat them accordingly. Teachers aren't always understood. They're not always heard. Some people hear one thing, some people hear another. Number three, three out of four seeds end up badly here. Did you hear me as I read to you what happened to them? Some seeds fell on the path, and the birds ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. They sprang up quickly, had no depths of soil, were scorched, scorched, withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, but thorns choked them. Difficult, difficult, some of these seeds and their fate. The last 10 days, Coach Tony Dungy has been making the rounds of the talk shows. He's written a book. It's called Quiet Strength. You recall that Coach Tony Dungy and his Indianapolis Colts won the Super Bowl this past February. Um, he, the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl in the NFL. So he was asked now to write a book about these experiences, and he's written one called Quiet Strength. In every interview I saw, he was on Jay Leno, he was on David Letterman, he was on one of the early morning shows when I was shaving, getting ready to go to work the other morning. And in each of these interviews, he was asked slightly different questions and therefore giving slightly different answers. But the underlying theme was the same. He said that he played on a Super Bowl winning team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, that his coach was Chuck Noll. And he said Chuck Noll was one of those kinds of coaches who didn't scream, rant, rave, jump up and down, throw tirades, throw things out onto the playing field. Chuck Noll, Tom Landry, he said, they were a different kind of coach. I decided maybe I could be a coach like those two. I didn't want anybody cursing me, so I didn't curse them either. I didn't want anybody screaming and yelling in my face, spitting all over me, so I don't do that to anybody else. I really believed you could be a man of faith and try to surround you with people who have a shared sense of value, that you could teach them, coach them, work with them as if they were important people. He said, I was not a superstar when I played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I was good enough to be on a Super Bowl championship team, but I was a backup safety. I played on all the special teams. I had to go down on the kickoffs. I had to run in on the punt, punting teams, punt returns, kickoff returns, where everybody's running wide open, 40 yards, they're running wide open, and you crash into each other. That was the way I played. But Chuck Noll convinced me that I was important. 
that even though I was not a starter on offense or defense, I was an important person on the team, that even if Terry Bradshaw was injured, the rest of us had a chance to win if we all pulled together. He was asked by one of the interviewers, but why do you begin your book with your being fired at Tampa Bay in 2001? Well, he said, because I wanted people to understand. Even for those of us who try to do the right things, things don't always go well. There was an owner in Tampa Bay that thought I should be tougher, meaner, scream more, throw things out onto the field. I wasn't willing to do that. I didn't know for sure if I'd get to coach another NFL team or not. I hoped I would. Really believe maybe I might be, but it would take a particular owner who would buy into doing things the way I did. And Tony, what about that son of yours who took his own life? And he talked about that as well. He said, a friend of mine had told me years before, it's easy to have faith when your refrigerator is full. It's tougher when there's nothing in the refrigerator. When things are going wrong for you, things are going badly for you, you're hurting. How much faith do you have? Not all seeds fall where you wish they were. Not all of them. Number four. Ah, oh, but one seed fell on good soil, and it yielded a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. It's interesting that Matthew is following right along with Mark here. He's copying Mark word for word in this particular passage, and then he reverses exactly the way Mark said things happen. Mark said one produced thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. No, no, he said a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. He puts the big number first. And every commentary I read this week said, yes, this is about superabundance. Yes, you can count on God. The kingdom is a sure thing. We are going to win because God's going to win. But one commentary, Dr. Brandon Scott, raised a different thought. What if a hundredfold is not superabundant? And then he quoted from Pliny. You and I were told his name was. The Italians say Pliny, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger. Father-son historians in that first century of this common era, they described the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, about the pouring of all this lava onto Pompeii and Herculaneum and so on. Those plenies, they wrote that there is great soil here in Europe, in Sicily, they said, in Andalusia, in Egypt. It is not unusual for a seed to produce a hundredfold. And Brandon Scott says, if that be true, then maybe it means you do not see the kingdom in the superabundant. You see the kingdom in the everyday and the ordinary. Ruth Rowan has written about an evening when their family were all together in the den. Dad was reading one book. She was reading another book. The son was watching television. The little girl was practicing her writing just learning how to write. When the children went on to bed, she said, I saw that our little girl had left her writing paper there in the den. I went over and looked at it. She had written her name, her age. She'd learned what our address is, the telephone number, a couple of other things about herself. And then she had written, but sometimes my brother is mean to me. And Ruth said, but before I saw the paper, my husband had seen it. And he had written another line. But my father loves me. 